Well, good morning to you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for joining us as we worship God together this morning. It's always good to be with you. If you're new here, uh, maybe it's your first time visiting or, uh, yeah, you're here on Arm of a Friend. Special welcome to you. Thanks, Nate. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. And, yeah, I'm excited because today we are continuing in a teaching series that we've been in for a, for a little bit called This or That. It's a series about the kingdom of God and what does it look like to live a life of the kingdom in today's world. And so today we are going to be in a teaching from Jesus in what's called the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 to 17. That's going to be our text today. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But let's read this together and then I'm going to pray and we'll jump in to hear from Jesus this morning. This is the word of the Lord for us. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for the, the Bible, the word of God, that you speak to us about who you are and what does it look like to follow you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have poured out for us that speaks and convicts and heals and brings life where there is death. Jesus, I pray that through your word and through the spirit today, you would speak to us that you would expand our vision for this life that you've called us into, called the kingdom of heaven, and you would give us the power we need to actually live this life. Not just in this room, but outside this room as we follow you. And so we give you this time. I turn this over to you, Holy Spirit, and pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today, Jesus says that if you want to understand, grasp, the beauty, the power, the reality of the kingdom of heaven, then you need to start thinking about weddings and wineskins. Weddings and wineskins, two images, two pictures that Jesus is going to give us today that are going to illustrate something about the kingdom of heaven, something about the reality of heaven breaking into this world that you and I are being invited to participate in. Now, weddings, we're, we're, most of us are familiar with those, if not all of us. Wineskins, maybe not so much. But the key to all of what Jesus is going to teach about weddings and wineskins today is about the rule of God and the reality of heaven coming to earth and what that means for you and for me in this room and online today. And so the question in verse 14 that kind of gets Jesus talking about weddings and wineskins comes from John the Baptist's followers. They come to Jesus and they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? Now that's a, that's a question that's filled with curiosity, but also with accusation from a re- group of religious people who aren't really buying into what Jesus is up to in the world. 
And this is the first time that we're going to actually see the religious folks of the day rear their heads and show up in the story that Matthew is telling. telling. And so to understand the context of this question, to understand both the curiosity and the accusation, we're just going to zoom back and go to a, a brief flyover of where we've come to and what leads up to this question from them. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. There, Jesus is a teacher. We see him with his teaching hat on. He's on a hill and he's got all these people around him. Some of them are his followers, some of them are the crowds, some of these religious people of the day. And he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a person who aligns their life with him and then starts living in the way that he is instituting in the world. And we see Jesus for several chapters teach about the character and the values of this new upside down kingdom that he is instituting in the world. And then in, in chapter 8, verse 1, teacher turns to the Jesus of power. We see him go from teaching to demonstrating the reality of what he's teaching about. And what we see is this beautiful section where Jesus is bringing the kingdom alive right before people's eyes with his incredible power. If you read, he heals a man with a skin disease. This man was cut off from the community and from worshiping God. And so Jesus heals him and it's this relational and physical healing. He heals two people that are paralyzed, that have never been able to walk and Jesus makes it possible for them to walk again. He heals a mother who has a really bad fever. He drives out evil spirits that have been ruling two, some people's lives that were oppressing them and holding them back from all that God had wanted for them. He stops a raging storm with nothing but his voice. He forgives sins of, of people and he restores them into a relationship with God, which is something that only God can do. You see all of this in just a very short frame of the story that Matthew is telling. He's telling us a story of a Jesus with power to break the grip of sin and darkness and evil in the world. That in Jesus, as he exercises this incredible power, the kingdom of heaven is being shown that it is really here. That it is coming alive on earth and darkness and evil is being overcome one moment at a time. And now, anything is possible. It's about the power of heaven beginning to be breathing upon a fractured world and making all things new. This is kind of the part of the story that Matthew brings us in. And he says that the kingdom of God is not just a matter of, of, of fancy talk, but it is actually one of power. Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, wrote a lot of the New Testament, he wrote about this saying, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And that word power is the Greek word dynamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from, which is pretty cool. That we get the word dynamite from this word power. It's the, the ability to do something. It's the power or the force that someone has to do something. And so in this section of scripture, so far, what we see is that Jesus doesn't just talk about the kingdom. He actually makes it come alive with explosive power. See, when I was in college, one of my favorite memories 
I was, a, I was a hockey player in college, and, and, and we'd go to the gym in the morning with all the other athletes from all the other teams and all my teammates, and we'd work out together. And it was this, this awesome experience. One of my favorite memories is you'd have the music going, and all the teams were, were singing along, and we're, we're training, and we're sweating, and we're working hard, and we're pushing each other to, to get stronger and lift heavier and to be faster, all in the pursuit of this championship that we were all pursuing. I, I, I remember those days. That was when I was in shape. It was those were good days. They were really good days. But there were these twin brothers on, on the football team, and they were, they, were, they were awesome football players. One of them played in the NFL. One of them ended up playing in the CFL. And when they would lift weights, the whole gym would stop because these guys were freaking animals in the gym. Like, they were crazy. Like, they would just keep adding weights, and we're like, they're not going to be able to lift that. And then they would just toss them around like it was nothing. Like they were so explosive. It was like they had rocket launchers in their arms and legs to lift these incredible weights. And we would just watch them move these weights with such power and we were amazed by it. It was so fun to watch. And you have to think that if you were walking around and you were following Jesus, watching him do these incredible acts of explosive power, it would have been pretty fun to watch too. Right? He's doing things that no one else could do. Except he's not moving weights. He's moving evil and darkness aside. He's conquering sin. He's conquering the, the brokenness in creation. He's replacing the evil and the darkness with goodness and light and peace and forgiveness and freedom. And all of this, as Jesus pours out his power and starts to right what has gone wrong in the world, leads us up to this passage. He's pouring out his power and he's making the kingdom come alive as he's doing it. And most people, they loved this about Jesus, but some didn't. Some struggled with this. And the people that struggled with it the most were the religious people. In back-to-back -back stories, we see this in Matthew 9, verse 9 to 13. Jesus is eating with some tax collectors and sinners, which is this blanket statement that you see all the time for the people that nobody had time for. They were the outcasts, the marginalized, the people that didn't follow the law, they didn't live right. And this religious group of people called the Pharisees, they come and they poke their nose in and they see Jesus eating with this kind of people and they're upset because they think he's eating with the wrong type of people. And then in our passage, another group of religious people show up. The disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist is in prison at this moment for, for teaching about Jesus and teaching about the things of God, but he still has some followers and they show up and they come to Jesus and they say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So in back-to-back -back stories, we see the Pharisees who are upset that Jesus is eating with the wrong type of people. And now in this story, we see that John's disciples are upset that Jesus is spending his time feasting and not fasting. They look at Jesus and they're like, you should be fasting and not feasting. Why aren't you? And here's the thing, if you don't know what fasting is, fasting is a spiritual practice that God gave to his people for a purpose. It was a good thing given from God to help them connect with God, to focus on him and to focus on prayer. And so to fast is you abstain from food or you abstain from something for a period of time in order to focus on God and to focus on prayer. And ever since God's people had been God's people, fasting was a part of their life with God. In fact, long before Jesus, God gave uh, this, this command to his people. He said, once a year on the holiest day, 
of the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement, I want you to fast. I want you to abstain from food for this time, to focus and to be cleansed of your sin because the high priest is going to go and he's going to make a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the nation. I want you to fast on this day. And so that's what uh, the scriptures of the day, the law taught, is that God said on this day, the Day of Atonement, fast. But by the time Jesus shows up in the world and by that time he is on the scene. Religious people like the Pharisees and John's disciples, they fasted twice a week, if not more, which went way above and beyond what God had laid out in his teachings. And it wasn't so much that that was the problem, but it was the way they fasted that was the problem that Jesus took issue with. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 18, Jesus tells us that they fasted in order to be seen and noticed by other people. He says there, when you fast. And so even Jesus says, you know what? He assumes that we're going to fast. It's a normal part of practicing our faith and connecting with God. But he says, when you fast, don't fast like these guys. Because you know what they do? They, they grow their beards and their hair really long and they smear ashes on their faces and they walk around all gloomy and sad and dour. Why? Because they want everyone to notice how holy and pious they are. And Jesus says they're totally missing the point. Fasting is for the hidden place. It's with you and God. Fasting is to cease something in order to draw closer to God, to receive more of God. And Jesus says, these guys, they're missing the entire point of what fasting is. It's about focusing on God, deepening your life with him, depending on him. That's what, but they're, they're spending their time trying to be noticed by others. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with fasting. You know, he fasted. Matthew 4, 2 says he fasted for 40 days. But he does have a problem with this religious kind of fasting to be noticed by others. See, the Pharisees and John's disciples, what they did is they followed this strip, strict regime of fasting and they expected others, expected others to do the exact same thing, to do it the way that they did. And when they didn't, they were like the religious police that would show up and demand an answer to know why you are feasting and not fasting. And here's the thing. Every time the kingdom of heaven is present, the religious people love to show up. The religious police will always show up where the kingdom of heaven is. Like in these back-to-back -back stories, they show up at a, a party that Matthew is throwing for Jesus, which is a picture of the kingdom of God, is that God is a God who is with his people, who embraces everyone and anyone, no matter their story, no matter their background, no matter what they have done or have not done. And the Pharisees show up and they're like, you're not eating with the right people. And then John's disciples think that Jesus' feasting is unacceptable and that he actually needs to get serious about his faith. He's the son of God. He's pretty serious. See, all the religious police see are irreligious, immoral outcasts that are best kept at arm's length, and they see Jesus welcoming these people into a life with him, and it rubs them the wrong way. It doesn't fix the category, it doesn't fit the categories that they have for what it means to be a person of God. And so Jesus, man, he rubbed the religious people the wrong way. Because he was living on a, a different wavelength. 
He was replacing their traditions and ways of practicing their faith with new ones. He was releasing people from the rigid religious rules they, had, they were burdened by and were told they had to follow. He hung out with the people that the religious thought they shouldn't be hanging out and shouldn't even be among God's people. See, as the famous Bob Dylan song says, the times they were a-changing and the religious police didn't like it, which is why they came to ask Jesus this question. I like what Tim Keller says about this dynamic of the kingdom and religious people. He says, in general, religiously observant people, like the Pharisees or John's disciples, were offended by Jesus. But those estranged from religious and moral observance were intrigued and attracted to him. We see this throughout the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. In every case where Jesus meets a religious person and a sexual outcast, as in Luke 7, or a religious person and a racial outcast, as in John 3 and 4, or a religious person and a political outcast, as in Luke 19, the outcast is the one who connects with Jesus and the religious person does not. Jesus says to the respectable religious leaders, the tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Jesus is turning everything upside down. All the norms of the day, all the ways of evaluating people, all the ways of connecting to God are being turned upside down and the religious folks had a hard time embracing it. They constantly showed up and they collided with Jesus because wherever the kingdom of heaven is present, the religious people will struggle. It always will. But I love Jesus because what he does is he always took their kind of accusatory questions as an opportunity to teach about what the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's actually doing in the world. And so he takes their question in verse 14, and then in verse 15, he answers it by talking about a wedding. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. And so this new thing that Jesus is doing in the world is not the empty, dry, religious rule-keeping that was practiced by the Pharisees and John's disciples, but it's actually a way marked by celebration and joy. It's the kind of life that is best pictured by a wedding. See, in Jesus' day, weddings were a big to-do. I mean, it's it's still the same, but feasting and, and, and the celebration would actually last several days, and the whole community was invited in. So you had the whole community coming, you had feasting, you had good wine, you had dancing, you had singing, you had a celebration. It was this time of great joy, which is which is much like it is today. You know, if you've ever been to a wedding or you're married, then you know that weddings are a time to gather and celebrate this new couple. It's a time for the most part of joy and celebration. I mean, obviously, sometimes there's family stuff that kind of emerges around weddings and funerals, and and so that can steal it. But for the most part, in general, weddings are a time of celebration. Like the Catherine and I's wedding 10 years ago. All the people that we loved the most were in one room. And that was beautiful. We had good food. I still think about the pie bar that we had all these years later. We feasted, we danced, we drank good wine, all the things Mennonites aren't supposed to do. <laughs> I, wasn't Men- I wasn't in the Mennonite family yet. <laughs> but Jesus did it, so it's okay. And like, I mean, the best moment for me, the moment of the truest joy was seeing my bride walk down that aisle for the first time. My beautiful bride. Tears of joy. See, in general, weddings are occasions 
of joy and feasting and celebration. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking this and saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is meant to be like. It's like a wedding. And throughout the Bible, weddings are used as this picture or symbol of the kingdom of heaven. In places like Isaiah 25 or Matthew 22 or 25, or even our ultimate hope in Revelation 19, all of them involve this picture of a, a feast, that the ultimate hope, do you realize that all of history, the ultimate hope that we as followers of Jesus have is to sit down with the Lamb of God at a, Lamb of God at a marriage feast. That's what we're going to do. Feast. Celebrate with our king. And so both the future and the present reality of the kingdom might be best pictured as a wedding. And so it's why Jesus responds to this question by saying the presence of the king and the reality of the kingdom is a cause for celebration. It's a cause for celebration. This is not a time to get stuck in a lifeless and dead religion that can't give you what you're looking for. The presence of the bridegroom, which is Jesus. He's the bridegroom. And what he's pouring out is a time for celebration and joy. And hear me, Jesus is not saying that mourning or grief or suffering or sadness are not a part of his kingdom. The, one of the markers of his kingdom being present is celebration and joy. But Jesus taught that both deep joy and mourning are going to be the experience of his followers until he returns. And so this is not Jesus saying, you, you can't feel sad. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to grieve. You're not going to experience loss and hardship. It's him drawing a line in the sand between the old ways and the dead, lifeless ways of religion and the ways of relating to God that were common in that day and time and saying, here's the new way of the kingdom. Now embrace it. That's what he's ultimately doing. See, the days of religious rule-keeping and ceremonial purity laws were passing away and something new is taking its place and that's what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. And we receive this kingdom of heaven. We receive this celebratory life and this joy-filled life when we believe in the death and the defeat of the grave of Jesus. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God. But hear me, it's not just about getting into the kingdom. It's about the reality and the power of the kingdom becoming more real to us. You really need to get that. That this whole thing is not just about entering into the kingdom through faith in Jesus. That's beautiful. We want that. If you're here and you do not follow Jesus yet, our prayer and hope for today and every day that you are here is that you would encounter the beautiful Jesus that we're worshiping. You would give your life to him because he's worth more than anything. But once you have crossed that line, it's about the kingdom of heaven and the reality of what Jesus bought for you at the cross becoming more real in your life. And this is what Jesus is getting at. It's about the kingdom becoming more real to you and to me. And he says that when we celebrate and when we feast, we both embody and we experience the reality of the kingdom. It's both. That when we gather around a table and we eat a meal and share life together with people, when we delight in good food and good company, it's a kingdom practice that makes what Jesus has done for us become more real to us. And so we need both a belief in Jesus and the practices of Jesus so that the kingdom can come to earth in greater, greater ways and become more real to us. I like what the theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards says. He, he was a part of two outpourings of the spirit called the Great Awakenings in the 1800s. And he writes this, 
There's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. Feasting and celebration will give you an actual taste of the sweetness of the life that Jesus offers you. That's step one in thinking about and participating in what Jesus is pouring out. Step two is what Jesus outlines in verse 16 and 17. He says, we must constantly be leaving behind the old to take up the new. We must constantly be leaving behind the old to take up the new. And you see it in how he writes this. Listen to this, verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And so, as we've already said, Jesus has been pouring out his power, and now we've seen just before this, his deep joy of the kingdom into the world and into people's lives who want to experience. And now, it all leads up to this teaching in verse 16 and 17, where Jesus says that if you want to receive the power and the joy of the kingdom, you must say goodbye to the old in your life. And by that he means you need to put to death anything that doesn't line up with him or his kingdom. And to make this come to life, to bring this home to us, Jesus takes two things that we all can relate to and that people in his day could relate to, repairing clothes, and maybe the second one not so much, storing wine. First, the clothing. He says in verse 16, if you try to take a piece of clothing that has a tear in it, and you take another piece of new clothing and you don't treat it properly, if you put those two things together, when you wash the clothes, the untreated new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to actually tear the old piece of clothing more. Makes sense. Then in verse 17, he talks about the wine and the wineskins. And in those days, uh, wine was stored in leather, like leather, like pouches. And when, when they were first made, these wineskins were soft and pliable, and they were able to contain the new wine and its fermenting process. Like it would put so much pressure on the wineskin that only new wineskins could hold the new wine. Because over time, the wineskins would get old and brittle. Like the leather cracked, and it wouldn't be as strong and as pliable. And so if you tried to pour new wine into the old brittle wineskin, what would inevitably happen is that the pressure would become too much and it would burst, and you'd ruin the wine and the wineskin. What Jesus is saying is that new wine and old wineskins don't work. It doesn't work. You need new wineskins to hold new wine. And again, Jesus isn't talking about clothing and he's not talking about wine. He's talking about the kingdom. And what he's saying is that I didn't come to patch up and repair the religious way of relating to God. I didn't come to repair the religious practices of the day. I came to pour out something entirely new. Jesus came to offer a whole new garment and a whole new wine. Now, I don't know if you follow sports. I do. I'm a sports guy. But when a, a pro sports team, when they sign a new player 
or they trade for a player, one of the first things they do is they hold a press conference for that player to introduce that player to the media, to the city, and to celebrate their arrival. And if you've watched any of these press conferences or the highlights, inevitably what happens is at some point they take the new team jersey and they put it over the new player and they do a photo op. And when they do that, it's a signal that this player who used to play for a different team now belongs to this new team and is committing to play in their way in pursuit of their goal of winning that championship. And Jesus is saying that when you align your life with me, you're joining a new team. And you are committing to live in a new way towards the goals and the ends that I have for the world and for you and for everyone. See, your faith in Jesus means that you're on a new team. You've put on a new jersey of his righteousness. You've been given the spirit of God has been poured out. This new wine has been poured out in you to help you live this new kingdom life in the world. And so what Jesus is ultimately saying is that I am pouring out new wine. And the new wine is the deep joy, peace, and power of the kingdom. Paul, again, writes about this in a letter to the Roman church There he says these words in verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So put all this together, and here's what's going on. The old wine of joyless, dead religion is being replaced by a wine of deep joy and peace and life-giving power that Jesus is pouring out to anyone who wants it. And here's the thing, Jesus is looking for people and places to pour out into. And so if the wine is what Jesus wants to pour out, then you and I, we're the wineskins. You, me, the church are the wineskins that Jesus wants to pour new wine into. And he is looking for people and he's looking for places that are ready to receive it. Which is the final thing I want to highlight for us today. Is that if you want new wine, you need to prepare to receive it. You need to become a new wineskin. See, if you want new wine, you have to be the kind of wineskin that can receive and house and hold the new wine that Jesus wants to pour out. You must become a, a people, a person who can hold the power of God, the presence of God, the peace of God in new measures as he wants to pour it out. And if you want to be that kind of person, then Jesus says you need to prepare yourself for what I want to pour out. You need to prepare yourself. So how do you do that? Two ways, one from right from this text. The first is develop the habit of feasting and celebration. Basically, have a meal with other people. As we've already said, Jesus has said that one of the best pictures to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, one of the best ways that you and I can pull the kingdom of heaven down and make it visible on earth is to share a meal, is to gather around a table to eat together. It's a kingdom practice that doesn't just pull the heaven, heavenly realities down to earth and pictures it for people. It actually helps prepare you to receive more of the kingdom, more of the power, more of the peace, more of the joy that Jesus wants you to experience. And so feasting and celebration is one way to become a new wineskin for the first time and over and over again to stay soft, to stay pliable, to stay ready to receive what he wants to pour out. The other way is to practice repentance. 
And we've talked about this in this series that Jesus calls repentance a central kingdom practice. That if we want to be a kingdom people, if we want to be a church that images and embodies and experiences the kingdom, then repentance must, repentance must be at the heart of what we do. Jesus has already taught us in this series that repentance is the way you enter into the kingdom. It's how you become ready to receive his joy and power. That's what he's teaching us today. And it's another way to, to make what Jesus has accomplished for you and one for you in his life, death, and resurrection more real to you. And so repentance as the kingdom practice simply means that you take your life and you reconsider the way that you're going and the direction that you're you're, you're headed. And this is not just a once, like, what's the direction of my life? Well, I I go to church, I I tithe, I'm in a community group, I serve, I'm good. No, it's like looking at every little area of your life and reconsidering it in the direction that, and where's that pointed? Your money, your sexuality, your relationships, how you spend your time, what you watch online, all those things. It makes you need to reconsider all of it, Jesus says. And here's the thing, true, genuine repentance is a change of mind and direction that results in a changed life. Repentance is the practice where we reorient our lives constantly to Jesus and align our lives constantly to his ways. And it's one way, Jesus says, that we prepare ourselves to receive what God wants to pour out. So here's my question today. Do you want more of God? Do you want to receive what the kingdom offers? Do you want more of the Holy Spirit as we've already sang? Do you want more power and peace and joy than you currently have? Then you need to become a new wineskin. You need to prepare for what Jesus wants to pour out. See, he's looking for people in places that are ready to receive what he wants to pour out. He's on the move. Just recently, I think it was last year, I'm terrible with dates, so it could be two years ago, but I think it was last year we saw God pour out his spirit in Kentucky at the Asbury College. After a normal chapel service, a bunch of students, young people, stayed around to pray. And the Holy Spirit came in power. And for several weeks, people from all over the world either tuned in online or they drove or flew to get to Kentucky to simply be in the presence of God. Revival began with young people. You, over here, young people. It's happening all over college campuses. If you follow this, college campuses are experiencing renewal. There's a hunger for young pe- like from young people. And there's fountains on campus where they're holding baptism after baptism where normally fraternity people swim naked after a night of drinking. The upside-down kingdom is coming to life. God is looking for people and places to pour his new wine into, to bring heaven to earth in new ways. And I believe this is an invitation for you and for me and for us as a church to get ready. To become a new wineskin once again or for the very first time. Here's the problem. is too many people want the result but not the preparation. You want the anointing. You want the power, you want the peace, you want the joy, but what you don't want is the stretching. You don't want to look at the pain. You don't want to look at the trauma. You don't want the hard stuff to get to the place where you actually are ready to receive the anointing. If 
If you want the deep joy and the power we're talking about, then you're gonna need to prepare. See, revival will not come without repentance. The fresh wind will not come without repentance. All revivals in history, all moves of God in history began with repentance. And here's the thing, repentance and revival begins with you. Not the person beside you. Not that person over there who you saw posted something they shouldn't. Revival always begins with me. And when enough people experience revival in their own hearts, it spills out and it becomes a movement. And that's what we want. Repentance will not happen without revival. And so it's a this or that type of thing. Will you embrace this new way of the kingdom that we've been talking about today? This new way of power and peace and joy. Or you will embrace that old way of doing the life that you've always done. Will you embrace religion? What will you choose? God is looking to pour out new wine. And the question is, are you, are we ready to receive it? So maybe you're like, hey, I want it. I want to receive it. I want, I want the power of God. I want more of God. I want to be cleansed. I want to experience purity in my life. I want all those things. How do you receive it? Well, Simon Ponsby says this, the person who would have more of God must give more to God. The person who would hear God must listen more to God. The person who would be filled with the Spirit must relinquish all rights. The Spirit must have free reign through our whole lives without any compartmentalizing or qualifying what he may do or where he, where he may go. Do you desire more of God? Then yield to him. Surrender is the only way to live a life in the spirit. So here's the deal. We prepare by yielding ourselves to God. Through surrender and repentance and consecrating and committing our lives to God. Here's the call. Let's become new wineskins. Let's become new wineskins, yielding ourselves to God so he can pour out his power and his peace into us. And as revival breaks out in me and in you and in us, then it will spill into this city. And that's what we're here for. So I'd like to invite the prayer teams up and call the worship team up. And what I'd like to invite you to do today is to consider where in your life is an old wineskin? Where is there a part of you that's hard, brittle, stiff, that isn't ready for the new wine of Jesus. And then consider, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to surrender your life to Jesus once again or for the very first time? What does that look like for you? And so we're gonna sing a song and then you know, we're gonna respond and the prayer teams are here. You can come forward or pray with the people beside you. Bring a celebration of what God's been doing in your life. Bring what you want them to pray over you so that God can prepare you to receive his spirit. And so I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to ask that God would pour out his new wine in this place as we respond to him. Jesus, we believe in who you are. We believe that you are a king who washes feet, who calls the broken, the lost, and hurting friends. We believe you are a king with all power and authority and that you came from heaven and you laid your life down so that we could know the love of God. Be washed clean. And then you rose from the dead and you filled us with the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, so that we might actually experience what you came and died for 
life of God, eternity, forgiveness, adoption. These are beautiful things that you've received. And just, we just want to say, we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to just know intellectually about these realities, but we pray that you would make what you have done for us and the kingdom of heaven more real to us. Give us the ability to look at ourselves truly, to receive the spotlight that you want to shine on our lives and lead us to repentance that we might become people ready to receive the power and the joy that you want to pour out. And so in this room, I pray that you would be alive and active Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would pour out new wine in this place, in this moment, the embers of a revival would begin to smolder. In Jesus' name.